Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, co-hosting with WFIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. This week, we're talking about the fight against COVID-19 and about vaccine distribution. We have four guests with us today. Kirk White is the Assistant Vice President for Strategic Partnerships at Indiana University. Dr. Dan Handel, MD, is the Chief, the Chief Medical Officer for IU Health South Central Region. Carol Weiss-Kennedy is Director of Community Health for IU Health Bloomington Hospital. And Amy Meek is Nurse Manager for the Monroe County Health Department. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can send us your questions there. You can also send questions for the show um, to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We're doing the show over Zoom today, so you can't call in with your questions. Well, thank you all for being here with us today. Um, I want to start with Kirk White. Kirk, it was just a year ago that the university was trying to decide what to do. You were thinking about um, how we could maybe uh, use spring break Students were supposed to be off for two weeks, and then you were going to check and see whether they could come back. And now here we are uh, a year later. That seems almost quaint that you that there was maybe a two-week spring break going to happen, and then students were going to come back. So can you sort of reflect back on that time and, and how little we knew then? Well, Bob, you're right. We didn't know a whole lot. We knew it was coming in January is when we started tracking it at the university. You know, personally, I was still deployed at that time. I was overseas in the Kingdom of Jordan on my final military assignment. And uh, I was just reflecting on how it felt being overseas at that time and watching this start to unfold and knowing that I was flying back into the middle of a a, a national emergency, more or less. And as we left Jordan, uh, it was like uh, leaving uh, a scene from a bad disaster movie. The, The roads were were all deserted. Uh, there were military blockades at every at every inter- major intersection uh, as we traveled through the country to get on our flights uh, to leave from the air base. But at the, back here at the university at that time, uh, it was a lot like the rest of the country. We were trying to figure out exactly where we were, uh, what the risks were, and the best way to to uh, organize ourselves to respond to an emergency like we'd never seen uh, hit the campus since uh, really World War II. And so uh, I think that the, the best things you can say about this is that it has allowed us to, to put an organizational structure together that took best advantage of the experts that we had on the campus and throughout the university to make the policy decisions really like we would at a research university looking at the science and making the decisions strictly by those considerations. 
And that's really what's kept us in business uh, and able to do things in a safe environment, which has been President McRobbie's top priority uh, since this whole thing began a year ago. We'll get back to you, Kirk, and talk more about what the university's done, but I want to bring Dr. Dan Handel in, Chief Medical Officer for IU Health South Central Region, and also Carol Weiss-Kennedy is here, Director of Community Health for IU Bloomington Hospital. Uh, Dan, you and I have had the opportunity to talk several times in the last few weeks, and I know, uh, I know some of what you've been through over there, but if you could just share a little bit of uh, the journey of IU Health and trying to figure out, you know, from a year ago where we were to where we are now. Thanks, Bob. You know, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a long road, and um, I think it's been really tough on our team members, not only in the South Central region, but across the state. But as we start to cautiously reflect back on the past year, I think we're a much stronger organization as a result of it. Um, I think we have figured out how to really operate truly as a system, you know, and how to deploy our resources where they're needed in the moment. And I, and I think those lessons um, we're gonna continue to, to carry forward to constantly look at how do we better deliver care to the communities that we serve, not only in the South Central region, but across the state of Indiana. It's, it's um, and, and I, I really appreciate the partnership that we've had with IU, especially in Bloomington um, over the past year as well. And I, I really want to applaud Kirk and the university. I think they've probably done it as well as anyone across the country in terms of really mitigating um, this pandemic and, and, and making sure that we kept our students safe. So it's, it's been a hard journey, but I, I think we're, we're much better off as an organization moving forward because of it. Carol, as a director of community health, I mean, your job had to had to have changed considerably uh, trying to work with all the other community partners and try to make sure the community stays safe. So how how has your life changed and how you know have your your how's your job changed? Um, obviously, um, everything went virtual um, with our team, and that was really difficult for a group of people that are used to meeting with people. Um, providing services and building relationships. So that was really difficult in, um, in the very beginning, but I saw, you know, kind of that uncomfort or that discomfort more um, with our team, especially turn to ways of, well, how can we make this work and what can we learn from this? You know, some of the things that were developed were testing at home for HIV versus having to have somebody come into a space or what could we do in the parks to help clients um, in those areas uh, just with some pop-up services. Uh, we provided flu shots um, like that in, in the community. So it became a challenge and something that I think everybody stepped up to, um, to bat and to take on um, and not so much fear anymore as you know we can do this type of an attitude. Amy Meek, uh, nurse manager, Monroe County Health Department. Amy, we've had Penny on the show several times, and I would dare say that the Monroe County Health Department's profile is higher now than it's been maybe in its history. But can you talk about, you know, working at the health department and how, you know, how you've been uh, changed for the last year? Certainly. So I manage our Monroe County Public Health Clinic, which is actually the link between the health department and the hospital. So in Monroe County, that nursing division part of the health department 
is contracted to IU Health Bloomington Hospital. And we've actually done that since 1965, so it's not a new thing. But this has been, you know, one of those opportunities where we know that collaboration is strong and that it really benefits our community. But never have we seen that more strongly than through a global pandemic. So being able to just pull resources from both the health department side and the hospital side to meet our community needs has been really great. All right, Sarah. Amy, we've gotten in a lot of questions, particularly about vaccines. Can you just go over who is eligible right now? So the eligibility has been lowered to 50 plus. So, um, you know, we look week to week for the state to maybe roll out new eligibility criteria. That has been one of the things we don't always get head up whenever there's a new rollout for eligibility changes, but as of today, that is 50 plus. There are also some certain medical conditions that would prompt someone to be eligible for the vaccine. And if someone is eligible in that way, they would have gotten notice from the state through their doctor's office. And then of course our healthcare providers and frontline staff are still eligible for to get vaccinated. Okay, and then we got a question asking when will 40 and older be eligible? And I'll go ahead and ask you the other question too, which is where can people go get a specific kind of vaccination? We've seen people, um, some of the questions are, I just want to get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, for example. Yeah, so that's a popular question. Um, the age limit, we don't know what day that will lower, but we know it will continue to lower and we kind of expect it to lower quickly so that more people are available to get vaccinated. We've kind of maintained the stance that the best vaccine for you to get is the one that's available to you. So while you might want a certain vaccine, there's only certain vaccines available. So certain sites have one vaccine shipped to them. Another site might have a different vaccine shipped to them. But as far as efficacy and as far as just getting vaccinated, you really should just get your appointment where you can get your appointment and get vaccinated. Dr. Handel, we talked about that this week, and um, so some people may have heard you and I talking about that this before, but could you explain why what Amy said is absolutely right? I think the important thing is, um, you know, there's different numbers floating around in terms of the efficacy of these vaccines. So Johnson & Johnson, their more recent studies are in the mid-70s. Um, if you look at the original studies from Moderna and Pfizer, they're in the mid-90s. And that's about contracting the virus. But the first thing is not an apples to apples comparison because the studies for Pfizer and Moderna were done months earlier than the Johnson & Johnson trials were. So it's, it's hard to compare the two when you have different variants in the population from one period of time to the next. The most important thing and the thing that you and I have talked about a couple times now is how do these vaccines prevent hospitalizations how do, and more importantly, how do these vaccines prevent death? And when you look at the data of fully vaccinated individuals, it's 100% across the board. So why? So the reason that Amy said it doesn't matter, which is whichever one you can get first, that's the reason why. Because you know the, the only way we can start keeping people out of the hospitals, um, stop people dying from COVID, is to get everyone vaccinated with whatever vaccines available to them as quickly as possible. Talking about COVID, COVID-19, we're a year into this pandemic, 
And we have guests from Indiana University, IU Health, South Central Region, IU Health Bloomington Hospital, and the Monroe County Health Department with us today. So if you have questions, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and send us questions there to at noon edition. Kirk, uh, the um, task of the university was pretty mammoth. I mean, I think a lot of people were concerned when the students were going to come back this fall that it was going to be a disaster, that all all these young people were going to come to town and it was going to create a real difficult situation for not just the university, but the city of Bloomington. Can you talk about all the steps that uh, you took? I, you don't want to talk about all of them because that would take us uh, a long time, but talk about the steps that the university took and the success rate that you've had. Well, Bob, you know, I, I think, uh, I think the, the, the concern that uh, the community felt, uh, we felt it too, and perhaps even amplified quite a bit because to us, it was a matter of whether we could have with whether we could open the campus uh, in the fall or not. That was the question in the summer. Uh, can we have the campus in some form of operation in the fall safely? And what was the best way to do that? And uh, right off the bat, uh, the university organized uh, several uh, expert committees uh, from the executive level uh, to the campus level to take care of those questions throughout the state where we have locations. And uh, one of the best things they did was organize a medical response team uh, known as the MRT, which was made up of uh, four of our expert uh, infectious disease uh, physicians from the IU School of Medicine, uh, complemented with representatives from each of the campus. The MRT was able to put uh, uh, day-to-day guidance together but that was uh, overall guided by a restart committee, which uh, was chaired by the, uh, the deans of our schools of public health and, and uh, school of medicine. And that was really a blue ribbon committee that put together wide, a wide range of uh, overarching uh, policies and guidelines. And then it was up to the MRT and then at our level at the campus, a, a COVID response unit to then interpret those and then make recommendations back up again. So it's been a really great team effort. And then the, the final part of that here locally was for us to work hand in hand with uh, the local elected officials, the county health department, and, and of course uh, the hospitals. And, and, and I think that our relationship today is stronger than it's ever been with those organizations. And that's not been the case with some of our peers at other big 10 institutions where those uh, very essential partners are not getting along and, and have, have debated uh, how to best respond. So that's really how this has worked out and been so successful. And, and I guess finally is that, uh, you know, it's been a team effort. Our students, faculty, and staff have helped us. We've given them guidance and direction and in some case regulation, but they followed them for the most part. And that's kept us all a lot safer. Kirk, I, I think that there are some of our listeners that probably know, but some probably don't, uh, that every Friday you're involved with a, uh, a basically a news conference, uh, press availability with a lot of your peers to t- 
talk about this. And I think that's been uh, one of the important points is that you've kept everybody up to date. That's really true, Bob. Uh, uh, we've been proud to be able to do that. Um, the, uh, the local elected officials and county and city leaders, uh, as well as the university and the hospital, were able to, uh, to be as transparent as, as possible on a weekly basis because this, this all moves quickly and, and uh, things change by the day, really. If you look at numbers and guidance from the CDC, guidance from state and federal officials, uh, we had to be flexible and make changes uh, certainly by the day and, and announce them, make that available to the public as quickly as possible. And that weekly uh, uh, media opportunity has been a great way for us to communicate uh, with the public. Kirk, we got a question about COVID infection rates among students. Can you talk about what they currently are and you know, sort of how they have trended? Yeah, so uh, what we what we realized early on was the best way to to be able to to uh, monitor infection rates and contain any kind of outbreak was to do an aggressive form of uh, mitigation and symptomatic testing. Mitigation testing is the big one. Those are the people that are asymptomatic that we require to uh, to test at least uh, for the most part weekly. So that's for our students, faculty and staff. And for, for example, for the week of February 28th, just at the Bloomington campus, we did 26,890 tests, uh, which was right on track with what we had done the week before. Uh, we've got a positivity rate of 0.2% uh, on um, a prevalence rate and on, of those mitigation tests. and. And so that's, that's as low as it's been. And um, uh, that's much better than where we started uh, back in August and September where uh, we started the arrival testing and uh, immediately upon uh, students arriving in August, the decision was to test everybody as they arrive uh, and, and find where the, the infections were and get them in quarantine and isolation. And of course, we stood up a quarantine and isolation facility for all of the residents of our uh, residential programs and services on campus dormitories. And we required that the Greek houses uh, do the same thing. And we gave guidance to our off-campus students to quarantine or isolate themselves in their own small apartments to mitigate uh, exposure as well. So we're in as good a shape as we've been throughout the pandemic but we're not gonna take our foot off the gas. We're continuing to test. And as soon as we find uh, any kind of, of outbreak, we get it into to, uh, quarantine and isolation. I wanna ask uh, Carol Weiss-Kennedy and Amy Meek, both from, uh, from IU Health and the Monroe County Health Department about, about this um, massive testing and then basically uh, trying to switch over and create vaccination clinics and you know you I, I suppose you had some some plans on the books before this all started but can you talk about the the uh, the difficulties of, of getting these things going and and what's all sort of in involved in creating a mass vaccination clinic or just a vaccination clinic Amy you want to start 
Sure. So from the health department side, you know, as far as testing goes, that ramped up, of course, slower than we would have wished. So we had a little time to get that kind of working on its own. But when it comes to vaccination, those mass clinics, this is actually something we train for and plan for all of the time. So every year we schedule little what we call pods of point of dispensing, and we do them in small quantities and in large quantities. We do them in our schools. Um, We've practiced doing drive-through flu clinics during our hepatitis A outbreak. We had a couple, you know, very large pods that we set up to get people vaccinated for hepatitis A. So it's something that we're used to doing, but the difference with this, I think, is we're not used to setting it up and then maintaining it for so long. So that's been a little different. Normally we set this up, we do it, and we're done. But COVID isn't going to work that way for us. Before I ask uh, Carol to comment, I, I know when we had Penny on at one point, she said that she hoped when the weather got better that there might be some drive-through clinics. Do you see that? Or drive-through vaccination sites. Do you see that happening? Um, Oops, sorry. Go ahead, Amy. Sorry, I wasn't sure if that was for Carol or for yeah. me. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. no, you, you go ahead first and then, we'll, then I'll go to Carol. Yeah, so, I mean, I hope that that's something we can do. The big, you know, kind of factor for that is the inventory. So I think once we get a large amount of inventory that we do something like that, we'd be really excited to set something like that up. Carol? Sure, I'll just add um, to that. Um, as IU is rolling out their clinics, um, that could be a possibility because once again, supply ramps up um, and because space is much more available on campus for a drive-through clinic. But I think in terms of a whole community reaction to vaccine, it includes clinics similar to um, the IU Health Bloomington med arts clinic and the convention center clinic that the health department is running and then um, you know that gets one group of people but then we have to think about those people that can't come in and i think the health department is working on a homebound program and we in combination with the health department will look at how can we vaccinate those in shelters those in congregate living spaces Um, and then the next steps you know, in the next probably few weeks when supply um, is more available, there could be the mass uh, vaccination clinics. And then another step is really um, how do we get back to normal and how do you put this in um, a workflow that can be continued throughout? And so that might be retail pharmacies within hospitals or um, primary care. Those are yet to be done, but that's, you know, kind of a, a, a nice pathway to providing vaccination in a community. Carol, a quick follow-up. We got a question from a lady who says she's 86 years old and homebound and wondering when there might be a way for her to get a vaccine in her home and what that might look like, how she could sign up to be eligible for that. Sure. Um, I think you said uh, Carol, to answer that, and and but I'm going to let Amy answer that because through our, again, the partnership with the health department, they're actually working on that homebound piece, and um, she might give you more details about that as that's getting ready to roll out. Yes, so if they can call the Area 10 on Aging, they are collecting that list of people 
who need vaccinated and, and can't get out of their home. And we are partnering um, to roll that out hopefully in the next week. So we've started this week doing just a few of those extra doses, you know, at the end of the clinic, but that's really only maybe one or two doses. It's not very many. So we will be working with our fire departments and advanced EMTs to help us get that rolled out and do it quickly. So we will be addressing everyone that's on that list, hopefully very soon. We had another question, another specific question from a parent of a 36-year-old uh, daughter who has Down syndrome. And um, Amy, you might be able just to continue there. I, mean, or, I, I believe that people with Down syndrome are now eligible for the vaccine. Is that correct? They are. So she should receive a link from the state to sign up. And if she hasn't, then she should follow back with her primary care provider because providers were able to submit those names to get um, on the list from the state to get vaccinated. Okay, thank you. If you have a question, you can you can send us your question to uh, news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send us your questions there. Uh, we're talking about... Um, COVID-19 and we're a year in and we've got lots of questions from various people and we have great guests here with us. Kirk White from the university, assistant vice president for strategic partnerships, Dan, Dr. Dan Handel, chief medical officer from IU Health South Central Region, Carol Weiss-Kennedy, director of health uh, of community health for IU Health Bloomington Hospital and Amy Meek, nurse manager from for Monroe County Health Department. Sarah? This is a question for Dr. Handel. It's another question about vaccines. Um, sure. Someone just wondering if there have been any bad side effects that you've seen in anyone from the vaccine. Has anyone gotten really sick or even died? Not that I'm aware of. We've had, you know, a couple of people have had allergic reactions, but as far as I know, 100% of those people after being observed um, were able to go home. So, and I have not heard not only in Bloomington, but across the country of any deaths from the vaccines, not only in the trials, but since then. I think for those who have not uh, experienced this, and Dr. Handel, you can talk about it, but sure. after people have um, their shot, they they stay at the, at the site where they got the shot so that they can be observed in case they do have a serious reaction. Right. We watch everyone for at least 15 minutes. Um, to make sure they have no um, side effects. In the two sites we have at Bloomington Hospital in Paoli are literally across the street from the ER. So, um, you know, if, we, if, if someone has had any, any reactions, we can address them immediately. But it's, it's thankfully been an extremely rare event. I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, where we are right now. I mean, things are starting to look uh, a whole lot better. I think there's no doubt about that. Uh, the university has decided to have commencement for the class of 20 and the class of 21. Kirk, what's that going to look like? And, and what, are, what are the metrics or the numbers that make you think that that can be done safely? Well, we uh, for sure wanted to make sure that if we were going to do a commencement that we, we follow the consistency of, uh, of, of having a safe environment and not endangering others by, you know, making them feel obligated to travel here across the country or from around the world or whatever. So that's why commencement uh, being held uh, that first week of May is going to be uh, 
just for the graduates now. So the graduates will march uh, into a sim, uh, to uh, the Memorial, Memorial Stadium. Uh, we'll, we'll continue our masking and distancing protocols. Uh, and so we feel like uh, with, with those kinds of, of precautions in place, the students know how to do this. They're used to it by now. And we've, uh, I think, had almost 4,000 of our students that have RSVP'd saying that they do want to participate. So it is uh, being well-received and, and we're glad that we're able to do at least this and keep people safe at the same time. We've had a question as well about, um, and we'll get back to some of that, but we've had a question about what fully vaccinated people can do. Um, Dr. Handel, after someone is fully vaccinated, what, what do you think it's safe for them to do? I recommend people take a look at the CDC because, I mean, this is like many things with this pandemic and an evolving conversation. Um, the safest thing for anyone is to not only them be vaccinated, but the people they are in immediate proximity to to be vaccinated as well. So, for example, you know, Bob, you and I have talked about where both and I are, both you and I are fully vaccinated at this point. So we would be safe to be in close distance to each other. The problem is because we still have not reached that critical mass of people in the population being vaccinated, that even if you're fully vaccinated, you, you need to still continue to wear the mask, the social distancing, the hand hygiene and so forth. Um, more studies are coming out now that people who are fully vaccinated have a very low risk of being asymptomatic spreaders of the virus. Um, but there still needs to be some more data to support that. So until we reach that herd immunity, we need to continue um, all the public health practices that we've had in place for the past year. Do you think both both you and Kurt have uh, alluded to this, but we're, we're learning new things all the time, right? right. I mean, yeah. right. It's, all right. Hey, Bob, Bob yeah. I would add that uh, IU has updated its uh, guidance on uh, quarantine if you've been uh, if you've been fully vaccinated and after the two weeks of full full effect, uh, we're not requiring quarantine for our students, faculty, and staff if if they have been fully vaccinated and show no symptoms. So uh, that's one policy that we've changed to line up with the uh, CDC. All right, we're still taking your questions. I, I know Sarah has some more that uh, we can ask, but we're still taking your questions. So you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, Sarah, do you have anything that uh, has come in? So we do have a question about, uh, sorry, Sarah, I guess I put you on a spot there. We have uh, a question that just came in. It says, if you've been sick with COVID, is it okay to go get the vaccine right after that? Or is there a certain amount of time that you need to wait after you've been infected? Anybody have Dr. Handel or Amy? I, I thought, go ahead, Amy. Sure, so if you've been infected with COVID, you should have antibodies for up to 90 days. So possibly longer than that, but it, it's considered safe at least for 90 days to think that you have antibodies. It's safe to get vaccinated as long as you are past your quarantine time. You don't have to wait those 90 days, but you should already have antibodies for a while. 
All right, Dan, anything else? Yeah, no, I think it's exactly right. Uh, it's, there is not a, an urgency after you've gotten through the acute infection to get it. You know, we typically want people to wait, you know, several weeks to a month after their active infection, and they're still in that safe window um, to, to get it after that. But it's, I mean, we're still encouraging, the most important thing is we're still encouraging people after they've been infected to go get the, the vaccine um, because we're seeing better data that the immunity lasts longer with the vaccine versus people having the natural infections. Um, it's, it's almost a booster, if you will, after the initial infection to sustain their, their immunity against the virus. All right, looks like we have another question just came in for Kirk that says, how is the university thinking about travel for professors on sabbatical, student trips, things like that? Uh, we're still discouraging uh, travel at this point in time. Uh, the uh, uh, I'm, I'm just going to uh, check uh, to make sure that I I'm, I'm on track here. But uh, we're our policy that we've had for this spring, and we'll I believe can at this point at least continue into the summer is we're restricting uh, non-essential uh, travel. Uh, we're asking to restrict the use of university funds for business travel internationally or domestically. And if anybody uh, returning to campus uh, should minimize non-essential activities for uh, at least the first uh, 10 days after their return. And we're even really asking people to refrain, refrain from personal travel as much as possible. And I think, the, you know, the reason for this is, uh, as I said earlier, uh, this is an evolving pandemic still. And as we look at the uh, the CDC map uh, this week uh, that Florida uh, has the largest concentration of the UK variant in the country uh, so over, I believe, up, up to 700 cases of the UK variant. And so as people think about spring break, that's one thing, but travel to other parts of the country in the world, uh, bringing variants back, uh, exposing yourself to those variants that you may not have any, any immunity to, is not a good idea. And Kirk, let's just clarify this. The university essentially canceled spring break, right? Yes, we did. Uh, we're, we don't have a spring break. Uh, we put uh, uh, three uh, uh, study days uh, in place uh, in February, March, and April uh, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, and a, and a Thursday, one each month. Uh, for really for students to have a day without classes that uh, they can uh, rejuvenate a bit. Uh, and, and we think that uh, that's been helpful. We've had uh, pretty good feedback from those. Uh, some, of course, would still like to take spring break, but uh, as I mentioned, there are a lot of good reasons uh, to stay here and stay safe. Uh, frankly, being in one of our classrooms right now is one of the safest places you can be. Kirk, can you talk about um, just some of the costs that the university has incurred in responding to the pandemic? Well, I don't have the latest numbers, but I can tell you that uh, there are really two types of costs uh, in, in, in dollars, at least. And that is are the, the direct costs that we've spent uh, on our, our massive testing operation. Uh, uh, those tests at one point were costing us uh, over $100 a piece. When we stood up our own labs here in the Bloomington uh, campus and another set of labs up in Indianapolis that dropped the cost considerably and gave us an ability to have test results a lot faster. 
So there's the cost of the testing, the cost of PPE, uh, cost of our quarantine and isolation operation. And then there are the costs of what we're, we're missing out on, um, not able to have full capacity in the residence halls, having our dining operation uh, curtailed, the hotel uh, more or less closed, and the list goes on. And then finally, there's just the, the human cost of, of, of all of, of this, and particularly with some of our employees that have had to suffer from furloughs and this type of thing. So this has been, it's cost millions of dollars to the university, and we'll be adding all that up uh, down the road because we're hoping to get some relief from it. Yeah, can you can you talk just a little bit about what fall on campus might look like um, for students? So, like for example, will people have dorm mates, and also just for faculty and staff who maybe been working from home all this time? Well, what's that going to look like? Well, I think you'll find that uh, uh, fall will look uh, pretty close to fall of nineteen. Um, we've had to make that decision because uh, uh, you know the from the timing it looks like we're gonna be in a, in a pretty good situation uh, vaccine-wise uh, with our populations. And uh, frankly, students needed to start uh, be registering for fall classes. And so we had to decide how to utilize classroom space and things like that. So we'll be back uh, close to uh, normal as possible with uh, in-person classes as we normally would. Um, we'll still be encouraging, uh, I think we'll still be in a masked uh, situation uh, with the protocols of uh, that we've seen with hand washing and uh, distancing, um, uh, but within many of our classrooms, you're able to to keep some distance already. So uh, where it'll be maybe different as well with some of our larger events, uh, uh, those will be looked at a little more closely uh, as we get closer to uh, knowing what our infection rates are at that time. But looking good for the fall. Okay. Dr. Handel, I want to ask you, I've heard some experts saying that there might be yet another wave of the virus. Can you speak to that at all and what you think? I, I think the, until we reach a herd immunity state, you know, in terms of 70 plus percent of the population being immunized, um, there are still not only the, the original COVID, but also the variants out there. So we, we that, that is the way people are worrying about, particularly as certain states um, start relaxing their restrictions, um, that we can't let up yet until we get to that, that tipping point, if you will, to, to really squash the, the transmission of the virus. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on, on that uh, with you and, and our other public health um, representatives here about the idea that some states are deciding to reopen, you know, to 100%. And from where you are, and I'm gonna ask Amy first, I mean, from where you are in a public health setting, is that a wise thing to do? So we definitely wanna encourage everyone, even if they are vaccinated, to continue the course, you know, stay socially distant and wearing a mask and all those things. As Dr. Handel said, until we get her immunity, it's just going to be really important for all of us to do those things and, and not get too comfortable. Carol, do you have anything to add to that? I know, you know, it, it gets it into kind of sticky areas because 
you know, there's public health and then there's um, public policy and politics. And um, in some ways, the you know, they, they sort of overlap. Right. And um, I agree with Amy and Dan, and, and we all need to continue to wear masks and to social distance. And, you know, I think one key thing to remember um, is the healthcare and the public health professionals have been in this now a year and they're tired and um, you know some have lost family members some have you know just really it's just been a, a pull and a drain on everyone and and continuing to support the guidelines um, that are being asked of everyone even after being vaccinated um, it's really important um, you know, to be respectful to those that are taking care of uh, everyone. And, and, you know, for that reason, I would continue, you know, put health first aside of politics and other things, put your health first. And uh, we just got a question in on Twitter and Dr. Handel, you're probably best to take this one. Um, The question is, I take care of my health and my immune system. I get lots of fresh air, lots of sleep. I've not gotten COVID yet. Do I really need to get the vaccine? Yes. I mean, we continue to have otherwise young, healthy people who have to get admitted to the hospital. Um, There is nothing in terms of people's age or other medical conditions that prevents them from being at risk for significant illness from this virus. You know, I I think the other thing kind of to follow up with what Amy and Carol were talking about is, you know, we're still seeing a higher number of daily positive rates in the state of Indiana than we did in June of 2020. So we're not even close to getting down to really low numbers to really feel comfortable about moving forward. So it, yes, we're not as bad as we were in December or January, but we still have a long way to go. And I think to follow up to that last question that Sarah asked, I mean, Dr. Handel, you you work in the emergency room and you've mm-hmm. seen some people who've had, and, and you've worked with a lot, of, a lot of people who have had to work with people who were either very sick or um, dying from COVID. So, you know, the idea that uh, of getting a vaccine that can, can protect you uh, from this, I guess it's, I guess I'm just asking us to revisit the idea of what COVID-19 can do to a person if they get it. Yeah. I I mean, if, if we have a vaccine or even better, a series of vaccines that are 100% effective at preventing people from having to get hospitalized or dying from the virus, why wouldn't you get it? You know, in, in my in my mind, it's a no-brainer. Uh, another follow-up to that, Dr. Handel, do we know how long the vaccine might last? Is it going to be like the flu where it could last the whole season? The best data we've seen so far is at least three months. You know, obviously, as more data comes out, um, the CDC and other organizations like WH are going to revise um, those. I anticipate, and this is just me as an individual speaking, that um, because of the number of variants that are coming out typical with any virus, this is going to become part of a seasonal or a yearly vaccination campaign like we do for flu. Um, And the nice thing about particularly the mRNA technology is that it's fairly easy for them to reprogram their production lines based on variants to meet the needs from a, a spike protein and so forth and an immunity standpoint. So 
I, I have not heard anything clear about a yearly vaccination campaign. I think it's too soon to tell for that, but I would not be surprised if we start hearing about that in the next few months. One of the things we've talked about quite a bit in the last few weeks has to do with the, the different kind of vaccines and the different requirements for keeping those vaccines. And I know, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, Dr. Handel, you talked about your your hope that at some point the one-shot vaccine might just be available in doctor's offices so that when you go in for your annual flu shot or your annual physical, you could get a COVID-19 vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, I think it's, you know, it just becomes part of our regular vaccination routine. It's encouraging, particularly with the Johnson & Johnson, since it's much easier to store and much easier to transport that, um, you know, as Carol and Amy and their teams really try to reach out to the communities, having something like that, that's easily to spread. And it, and it just, it can become part of the preventive care we do for all of our patients. Amy and Carol, what what is the most recent um, data, I guess, on, on how cold you have to keep these these vaccines and I think I've, I've read maybe somewhere that the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine can just be refrigerated like normal. And I know I know the, the Pfizer had to be at 70 degrees below zero. I think the Moderna had to be at 20 degrees below zero. What's the, what's the latest on those? So Dr. Handel is right. It, it is a little easier with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, the Pfizer vaccine has a lot of, of handling, uh, storage handling issues and that's why it's wonderful that our hospital is giving that. And IU, if you know they're able to get the Pfizer vaccine, I know they're set up to do that as well. Just having those freezers is not something that everyone has. Moderna um, vaccine is a little easier than the Pfizer vaccine. It goes in a regular freezer. And from there, it's thawed in a regular refrigerator. So that's a little easier to handle. But then the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is, is even easier yet. So it's in a normal vaccine storage refrigerator. And once we draw that up, you know, we have to use five doses as opposed to 10 doses in the Moderna vaccine. So it's, it's easier to have people lined up to get that Johnson Johnson vaccine. But certainly all of those are, are manageable. Carol, what was IU's communication strategy at the start of the pandemic and how it was, um, how it was going to get information out to the community? Um, in terms of vaccination? Yes, and well, and honestly, just information about, as, because it, as we kept learning more and more about the virus. Sure, um, we had, um, so like IU, we had our own incident and, and marketing was involved in that um, daily meeting, um, talking about messaging and where and how those, um, that information was to go out. So it was very, um, I would say planned as much as we could, but it was discussed and, and um, you know, vetted among the, a group of leaders across IU Health. Um, of course, as a system, we had a lot of guidance and a lot of support from the system as well. Currently, um, today, we're using social media a lot to promote the vaccine clinic and to promote the safety of the clinic and our kind of hallmarks as we reach certain numbers of vaccination um, using social media. And that has been very helpful. The other thing that's been very helpful is word of mouth, um, you know, and, and people just sharing their experience, their good experience, and then community partners. That's always been, I think, our fail-safe 
um, you know, partnering with community um, agencies and sharing uh, information and um, asking for their help in dispensing information. Kirk, uh, I know the university has plans to open a vaccine site at Assembly Hall. What's that going to look like, and and why have you, um, you know, what what's that going to do to to move things forward for us? I think it'll it'll be a a, a big help for the community. And when we looked at it, we said, you know, we 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 had a chance to practice this uh, with the, the the huge flu of uh, vaccine clinics that we did last fall as well as the arrival testing where we did most of that outdoors that we had tents set up at uh, in the athletic complex and did it as a as a drive-through so we looked at the big picture and said you know we can help the county you know the convention center is going to need to come back online to, to host events uh, we've got plenty of capacity at assembly hall and at the athletic complex to do an indoor site and so uh, we we started working with the county health department in the state and realize that uh, uh, we can easily we can easily do the, the volume that uh, is currently being done at the convention center. But if we needed a surge and had the the supply, we could uh, vaccinate over 2,000 people a day at Assembly Hall. This will free up the county staff uh, to do uh, the the outreach clinics and other things that uh, they've been talking about here earlier uh, this afternoon. So uh, we're very excited about opening this up on March the 29th. Here in the next few days, uh, you'll be able to start making reservations on the state's uh, Our Shot uh, website. Um, and uh, as we fill up those slots, uh, we're gonna ask the, the, the state for even more vaccine. And uh, the more we get, the more we're gonna Open up more uh, 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 positions and uh, and 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 really be a regional resource uh, for people to come to Assembly Hall, get their shot, and um, and drive on. And we'll be able to do Pfizer because we've got uh, the ultra low uh, cold storage, and so that's been a, a help to the state as well. They told us, Dr. Handel, the uh, the president, President Biden, has said he he wants to have vaccinations available for everybody by May 1st. Do you see that happening? Um, I, I think it depends how quickly the production ramps up. I mean, if we, if you look at an upward slope of our current vaccination rates, it doesn't, it, it goes well into late summer, early fall. But obviously if that, the production rate increases dramatically over the next week or two, obviously the slope of that would go up dramatically. I, I'm. I'm cautiously optimistic, you know, that is a, a month and a half away, which will sneak up on, on us much quicker than we would like. So um, I think, and it's also getting people scheduled. So the question is how far out are people scheduling? Um, you know, so that may be a couple of weeks time from the start of May to actually when people get the first shot in their arms. We have just about two minutes to go. So if there's a, any last message that um, Carol, Amy, Kirk, or, or Dr. Dan Handel have, uh, now's the time. So Kirk, how about you? Any last minute uh, message you want to give to our listeners? Well, I just uh, say that, uh, boy, we've had success with such great uh, team effort by our our citizens, uh, our health community, and the university. We've just got to stay the course and, and maintain uh, what we're doing so that we can 
we can get ourselves back to normal. We can we can uh, uh, protect our families and our friends, and let's get vaccinated and uh, and get back to the business as usual as, as quickly as we can. Let's stay the course. All right, Amy. Anything? I, I would just say that I'm just so proud of our community. We talk about community partnerships, and that's something this community does the best. And when we say we're in this together, we really are. So I'm just super proud to sit around the table with everyone here on this call and other stakeholders that we've been working with. And we'll we'll get through this and we'll do it together like we always have. 30 seconds, Carol. Oh, thank you. I'd, I would add to what Amy said with it's just been uh, a pleasure and a great opportunity and privilege to support the vaccine clinic. The stories and the examples of people coming in for their vaccine with what they're looking forward to it's amazing it's been very heartwarming and just makes you proud to and, be a part of it and dan 30 seconds just finish this off there is a light at the end of the tunnel but we're still in the tunnel and we still have a journey ahead of us so you know encourage people to stay vigilant get vaccinated and we'll get through this together all right thank you to dr dan handel amy meek carol weiss kennedy and kirk white for co-host sarah whitmire <laughs> producer benta boutier and engineer john bailey i'm bob salzberg thanks for listening to noon edition noon edition is a production of wfiu public radio a podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.